You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Tim, I'm the senior minister here at St. John's, and uh, I want to have a look at that uh, passage uh, with you, Uh, and I want to do it in in two ways, to have a look at the story um, and sort of go through the story, uh, and then have a bit of a think about what the story means. So, um, Kira and Jazz, why don't you come down, because I'm going to need your help. You can just sit with Dad here at the front. Uh, I'm going to need more than Kira and Jazz, though. They can't play all of the roles. There's actually quite a few characters, and uh, you may get co-opted into storytelling tonight. Um, But I often find, actually, when you interact with a story and act it out a little bit, sometimes it's a really good way to actually get your head around what's going on and thinking about how it all works. So what we're doing is we're thinking about um, John's Gospel. So this is John's kind of biography of Jesus' life, uh, and looking in John at the appearances of Jesus after he rose from the dead, okay? Uh, It starts, uh, as we saw on Easter Day, this was our teaching on Easter Day, um, of the first appearances of Jesus on that very first Easter. So early in the morning, Mary Magdalene um, went to look for Jesus at the tomb, but the tomb was empty. Now, Jazz, do you want to come and be Mary? Because the first person who saw Jesus alive again was Mary Magdalene. Jesus appeared to her. Mary thought that Jesus was the gardener. She didn't recognise him straight away. But when Jesus said Mary's name, she realised it was Jesus. So the first person who saw the risen Jesus and proclaimed the message to other people that Jesus was alive was a woman, Mary Magdalene. Later that same day, Jesus appeared to at least 10 of his disciples. So I need 10 volunteers. Kira, do you want to come out and hold this sign? Maybe Dad will come with you. And there's a bit of maths involved tonight. I should warn you about that. There you go. Thanks, Kira. Can we have eight other people? Because there was at least eight disciples. Come on down. First eight, you're in. One, two, three... Just kicked over a cup of tea on the way. That may well have happened when Jesus appeared in the room. Plenty of tea got knocked over and stuff like that. Okay, now the reason there was at least ten is because... We're not there yet, are we? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, three more. Eight, nine, Ella, ten. The reason there was at least ten there is Jesus had twelve kind of disciples they were called, special followers who were there to learn from him. So there were 12, but Judas, who'd betrayed Jesus, he wasn't there, he'd betrayed Jesus, Um, and there was someone else missing, who can remember, who else wasn't there this time? Thomas, okay, who knows where Thomas was, he'd be kicking himself that he wasn't there, but he missed out when the risen Jesus appeared. So this is all on Easter day. Um, that this happened. By the way, a bit of an aside here, John is not telling us every single appearance of the risen Jesus that happened. 
The only way that you can work out all of the appearances of Jesus after he rose from the dead is by looking at the four different Gospels, the four different accounts of Jesus' life, plus there's a list that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15. And we know that on this same day, on Easter Day, Jesus appeared to Simon Peter. We don't get any details about that except that it happened. And also there were two followers of Jesus walking to a town called Emmaus, and Jesus appeared to them too. So there's more than this on that first Easter day, but John just tells us about these ones. Uh, Here's your little um, test for the week, something that you can do. Look at all of the four Gospels and 1 Corinthians 15, and try and put together a list of the order in which Jesus appeared to people. Who did he appear to? In what order and where did it take place? See if you can do it. So you have to look at the last chapter of Mark, the last chapter of Luke, the last two chapters of John, um, the last chapter of Matthew, and 1 Corinthians 15 in order to do it. But we're just sticking to John for the moment. So he tells us about these appearances. Then, the next one is not until one week later. So the Sunday after Easter Day, a full week um, passes... And Jesus again appears to the disciples, but this time Thomas is with them. Thanks, Thomas. You can go and join the party. Thomas had been pretty sceptical that Jesus was actually alive. He didn't believe when his mates told him that. And he actually said, look, I'm not going to believe unless I can actually touch the holes in Jesus' hands and in his side. I won't believe before that, which is fair enough. I mean, people don't come back from the dead. I'm with you, Thomas. I'd be very sceptical about this happening. And then Jesus did appear and Thomas was able to touch Jesus and he worshipped him and said, my Lord and my God. That brings us to this passage that Steph read to us tonight. And what happens is that we jump ahead a bit in time and we also change location. So the first verse says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So all of these appearances of Jesus happen in Jerusalem. That's the place where Jesus was put to death, in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his followers have gone there for the Passover festival, the big feast that they would celebrate, which you had to go to Jerusalem for Passover. And Jesus appeared to them then. But now... We move to Galilee, they've gone back home, and really precise time frame, we're told this is afterwards. We don't know how long afterwards, maybe a week, maybe a bit longer. They've had to leave and go home, and then Jesus appears again. Okay, here's all the characters that we have, right? If you don't get a role, you have to go and sit down. Uh, Thomas, you're in this, you were there. Simon Peter, Nathaniel. The sons of Zebedee, it says in this Bible reader, who we know are James and John, brothers. John's actually the one writing all of this down for us. Uh, And then we've got two others who are just called Random Other Disciple 1 and Random Other Disciple 2. I don't know why John doesn't bother giving us their names, but they're just called Other Disciples. Sorry, you guys weren't there. Um, Mary Magdalene, you probably weren't either, so... You can jump down and, and watch, Jazz. So we're told that these... Um, who have you got? Oh, you're, you're disciples. Sorry, Kira. I've, I've sacked the two kids from the role. Got all the adults here. Um, so here we are. You, do you want to go and take Dad's role? 
Do you want to go and take... Um, you, you can go and be Thomas, because Andrew doesn't really want to be there, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're told that there's seven of Jesus' disciples, these seven, who we've got their names for most of them, and they're in Galilee, and they're trying to work out what they're going to do next. <laughs> okay, we're swapping roles. We've got seven, though, right? And here they all are in Galilee, and Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, not really too surprising, Simon was a fisherman before he started following Jesus, but some people think it's a bit weird that Simon would say, I'm going fishing, and actually some people say that's the wrong thing for Peter to have done. Jesus has come back from the dead and appeared to Simon Peter. Oh, you're Thomas, where's Simon Peter then? Oh, you're Simon Peter. Sorry. Confusing. Simon Peter. Jesus has appeared to Simon Peter. Jesus is alive. He's breathed on um, the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, and I want you to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to people. Go and tell people that their sins are forgiven. If you forgive people's sins, they're forgiven. He's got this big purpose uh, for the disciples, as Sam spoke about last week. Um, and yet, rather than going out and telling people, Jesus is alive, we've got this amazing good news, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, we'll come with you. Now, I reckon Peter gets a bit of a hard time, people saying, oh, he shouldn't have been doing that, he should have been doing other things. Because we know from the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, that Jesus has actually said to them, go to Galilee and wait for me, and I'll appear to you there. And it's pretty hard to just stand around and wait, isn't it? Simon Peter's, you're probably a bit sick of playing Monopoly with the other disciples. That's a joke. They didn't play Monopoly. Simon Peter hated Monopoly. (laughs) Anyway, they were, rather than sitting around waiting, he comes up with a good idea. Let's go fishing. And the others say, well, we'll go with you. So out they go. Fishing, they spend the night fishing, and guess how many fish they caught? Do you know how many fish did they catch? Zero. Zero. Zilch, none, nada, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, put your hand up if you've been fishing. What's it like when you catch no fish? For me, that's just a typical experience fishing because I'm not very good at fishing. But Simon and James and John, at least, like they're professional fishermen. They know what they're doing. So to go out for a whole night and not catch any fish is a bit depressing. They're probably hungry, they're annoyed, uh, and back they come. And as they're coming back to shore, can you see over there? On the shore, as they're coming back in, there's someone standing there, and they can't quite recognise who it is, but this person on the shore calls out and says, friends, don't you have any fish? Thanks, mate. Just rub it in. We feel bad enough. We don't have any fish, and you want to rub it in. Um, And then the person says, throw your net. That's what I'm missing. You guys are out fishing. You didn't even have a net. says, that's the problem. I knew there was a problem here. Here's your net. So there you go, Simon. You Give some to Nathaniel too over there. This person on the shore says, 
throw the net out the right side. See, that's the problem. They've been throwing it out the wrong side, haven't they, Chaz? And Jesus says, throw it out the right side. No, he just means on the right-hand side as opposed to the left-hand side. So they throw the net in, and all of a sudden, they go from zero fish to so many fish that they can't even get the net back into the boat. We're told later that there was 153 fish in that net. Again, John's writing this down, and John obviously counted with the other disciples later and remembered the number. There's nothing magical about the number 153. It's just that they were really there, they really counted them, and that's what it was. Now, John realises that this person standing on the shore is not just some random bloke who's given them a tip, but it's actually Jesus. When you read through the Gospels, John, uh, you sort of see in his character that he's quite quick to get things. He's quite perceptive, and he, um, when he went to the tomb, he sort of picked things up more quickly than Peter. Mind you, he's writing the Gospels. So um, anyway, he works out that it's Jesus. But if he's the person who is quick to work things out, Simon Peter is an action man. So Simon Peter wraps his cloak around and jumps off the side of the boat. Off the side of the boat. Simon Peter wouldn't do this for me this morning. Excellent. Thank you. And swims to shore. If that's Jesus on the shore, you want to get to Jesus as quick as you can. Off you go. You swim 100 yards to get to Jesus as soon as you can. Thanks, Peter. You've left everyone here to get the boat in and all those fish. But Peter just wants to get to Jesus as fast as possible. The rest of the people, they do, to be fair to Peter, he's the one who drags the net of fish up at the end of the day when they do get to shore. So as well as being an action man, he's a bit of a muscle man. But these guys get the boat in and they come up onto the shore. Jesus has already got food on the barbecue for them. He's got a fire going and he's got bread and he's got fish. Don't exactly know where he got the bread and the fish from. We're not told that, but he's already cooking for them. He says, why don't you bring the fish that you've caught and we'll add that to the mix. And um, they sit there and they eat and they chat and they count the fish that they've caught and they enjoy breakfast together just like old times. Thank you, helpers. Why don't we give them a round of applause? That's the basic story. Now, Kira and Jazz and other people who are willing to help them as well, I need you to cut out some fish for me. There's probably more than you guys are going to be able to do here. There's some scissors, Diane, just under there that we're going to use. Is anyone willing to do... Can people cut and listen? We're going to think what the story means, but some people can cut and listen. We need enough fish so that everyone's got one. They don't have to be cut perfectly. There's not 153 fish tonight, because I thought that would be too many, but I've got some from this morning, so between the two of them we've probably got 153 fish. And while we're cutting that out, I want us to think just briefly, not just what happened in the story, but what does the story mean, what does it tell us? And there's three things that I want us to think about. The first thing 
that we get from this story, that it reminds us, is that the resurrection of Jesus, his rising from the dead, is real. Right? Christianity is not uh, a mythical story. Um, it's not a philosophy, which is just a whole bunch of ideas that you, you think about and it's up there and they're kind of profound sayings that you reflect on. Um, the Christian faith is founded on a story that is historical. It involves real people in real places, in real time, in real history. We've got names for the people in this story. We know the places where they were. Um, it's a real story, and the historical detail that shines through is quite compelling, from the personality of the disciples to the exact number of fish, the eyewitness account that we have from people like John who are actually there, we see that this is a real thing that happened. And the importance of Jesus' resurrection depends on the fact that it was a real event. And the risen Jesus is not a ghost. He's not a figment of the imagination of the disciples. He's actually there in his body. They touch him. They talk with him. They eat breakfast with him. Jesus is alive and he's real. Um, his body is not in the tomb. The tomb is empty because Jesus is there actually eating breakfast with his followers. Um, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is something that you do need to wrestle with if you are considering Christian faith becoming a follower of Jesus. That an essential part of what the Christian message is, is that Jesus died and then he rose again. That his body cannot be found in a tomb because he's alive again and he was seen by his disciples. Now, it's very easy to dismiss that out of hand and say, well, that can't happen because dead people cannot come back from the dead. Well, Christians aren't claiming that this happens all the time, that dead people come alive all the time. Christians, uh, like you, <laughs> um, believe that dead people do stay dead, except in this instance, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, he defeated death and came back to life that this was something that was unusual and unexpected, but that the evidence is there that you can investigate that this really happened, that people really did see him. If you're a follower of Jesus, the challenge for you, I think, is um, for, uh, not to lose the reality of this event. We come very familiar with the, the resurrection stories of Jesus, and we can lose the gritty realness of it. Sometimes we hear these stories so often that it's a bit like looking at a stained glass window of Jesus, which is lovely and beautiful, but it's a bit remote and unreal. We need to look at these stories and remember that these were real people and it's grounded in the actual stuff of life. Jesus' resurrection is a real event in real time. He had a real body that was seen by real people. So that's the first thing. The resurrection of Jesus is real. The second thing, though, is that the resurrection of Jesus is miraculous. You can investigate the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and I think it's compelling evidence from the eyewitness testimony, from the mystery of the empty tomb that needs to be accounted for. 
I think it's undeniable that there was an empty tomb in Jerusalem and it needs an explanation as to what happened that meant that the tomb of Jesus was empty. There's strong evidence there, but the evidence in and of itself will not guarantee that a person will believe in Jesus and his resurrection because it still requires a decision about what to do with the evidence that is before you and it requires a step of faith to decide that Jesus really did rise from the dead and deciding to put your trust in this Jesus. This next picture might help. Excuse my, my dodgy um, picture, but it's trying to capture sort of why evidence doesn't just prove the case for people. See, a lot of people have... Um, a predetermined worldview, an idea very fixed in their mind because of the scientific age in which we live in, which says the natural world is all that there is. The world that we see, the material world, that's all that there is. And so miracles cannot happen. There's nothing outside the actual material, natural world that we see. The, the viewpoint is sometimes called naturalism or materialism. Right? So a person like that with that predetermined idea that mirac miracles are impossible because the natural world is all that there is, looks at the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and says, that's, that's really good evidence, but a person can't rise from the dead because that's a clear idea already in my mind. So I don't know what happened, but I do know that Jesus can't have risen from the dead because people don't rise. Now, by the way, that's a faith position that that person is holding in their head. Uh, maybe you're holding that in your head tonight. That view that the natural world is all that there is and miracles cannot happen, that is a faith position because it cannot be proved or disproven. It's actually not a scientific position. It can't be proved by science. Scientists often enter into science with that idea that I'm just going to investigate the natural world, but a belief that the natural world is all that there is and miracles can't happen is actually a faith position that is being held there. And in order to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you have to trade that faith position for another faith position that is open to the possibility of miracles happening, looking at the evidence of Jesus, what happened there, and say, do you know what, I think this really did happen, which means I need to broaden the view I have of the world, that miracles are possible because Jesus actually rose from the dead and there's more to this world than just the material world that is all around me. Either way, what is required is a step of faith. It requires a step of faith to accept the resurrection of Jesus, but it actually requires a step of faith to reject it as well. Uh, there's a guy uh, called Sheldon Vanorkin, very cool name, um, and he had this dilemma before him. As he was investigating the resurrection of Jesus, he looked at the evidence and he thought, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is really compelling, but it doesn't prove the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and I just can't get over that little hump to actually believe in Jesus. Here's the quote. Uh, I've got a quote, it goes for a little bit, it's three slides, but I just want to read it as he wrestled with this to show the sort of dilemma that he was in. There's a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof, I wanted certainty, I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. 
I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these, and I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject. My God, there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God there was no certainty that he was not. There was, this was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do. Once I had seen the gap behind me, I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. Either way, you've got to make a decision. Do you go towards Jesus and accept that he really did rise from the dead and put your trust in him? Or having looked at that evidence, the compelling evidence that is there, do you leap the other way in faith and decide Jesus didn't rise from the dead and I'm not going to accept him? It's miraculous. It cannot be proved one way or the other. It requires a step of faith. For Christians who are here too, if you're thinking about sharing your faith with your friends... Uh, what this means is that you will never argue someone else into believing in Jesus and arguing people into the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, hear me rightly. I think we should prevent, present the evidence to people so that they can consider the evidence that is there for Jesus' resurrection. But because it is miraculous, because it does require a step of faith, we've got to pray. We've got to pray that God would work by his Holy Spirit to allow people to sort of see the evidence that is there and to take that step of faith, to throw themselves over that gap that is there towards Jesus and to put their trust in him. So the resurrection of Jesus is real, but it's also miraculous and it does require a step of faith. The third thing about Jesus' resurrection is that it is all about relationship. What's quite incredible about this story is how ordinary it is. Yes, there's some unusual elements. There's the large number of fish that happens. But a lot of it is really just about Jesus having breakfast with his followers and chatting with them. It's very ordinary. Um, in the story, you know how in, in Bibles we often put the words of Jesus in red because we want to learn these profound words of Jesus, the sayings that Jesus has? Um, there's four words that Jesus says to his disciples here, um, profound words, where he says to them, come and have breakfast. <laughs> right? It's not the sort of quotable words of Jesus that you would normally look at. Come and have breakfast. And yet it's profound because Jesus has risen from the dead and he just wants to be with his friends and to eat a meal with them. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that everyone would go, Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, great, Jesus, awesome, and walk off. Jesus rose from the dead because he wanted to be in relationship with us. He didn't do it to sort of wow us and just think it was great. He did it because he wants to be in relationship with us forever. Because Jesus is alive, he will never die again, and he is always there to be in relationship with us. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, he's defeated death, which is the great destroyer of relationships. Death is the thing that kills relationships, that cuts them dead, that cuts us off from being with other people. The resurrection of Jesus shows that relationships can go on forever because Jesus has defeated death. 
Jesus is physically there with his friends, having a meal with them, but now he's gone back into heaven. And yet, he assures us that even though he is in heaven, that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. He promises us that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. He promises us that he has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us, that the presence of God is within us each and every day. He promises us that he is always there to listen to us when we speak to him, open to hear our prayers and to speak with us and have a real and living relationship with us. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not just a historical fact that can be investigated. It's not just a miraculous proof that Jesus is God's son. It's about a relationship that goes on forever with the risen Jesus who is alive today and present with us today to be in relationship with you and with me. This ordinary scene with the risen Jesus eating breakfast with a bunch of guys on a beach and just chatting with them as they fill in some time together is a beautiful picture of what relationship with Jesus means for us in our ordinary everyday, right? As we sit and eat, as we go to school or study or work, as we do the sort of humdrum stuff that we have to do in everyday life, Jesus is there in the ordinary stuff. He's present with us to be with us, to guide us, to help us, to strengthen us, to love us. What I want you to do with the fish that have been handed out, um, if we've got some more to be handed around, I'd love uh, everyone to take one, is to actually write a prayer to the risen Jesus on the blank fish that you've got there. See, if Jesus is really risen from the dead, if Jesus is really alive and with us right now, and we can speak to him, what, what is it that you would want to say to the risen Jesus tonight? Uh, maybe, as you've been listening to uh, me speak tonight, listen to the Bible um, outlining uh, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, maybe what you want to write tonight is, Jesus, I do believe that you have risen from the dead and I want to start following you tonight. I want to take that step of faith and start following you tonight. Uh, if you do write that, we would love to know that you've done that. Please come and speak to us afterwards or um, write a note on one of the Connect cards that are in front of you because um, that is a huge thing to start doing and we would love to know that you've done that. Maybe for you, what you want to write to Jesus or say to Jesus is, Jesus, I don't even be necessarily believe that you're real. I don't know whether you're real or not. But if you are, please reveal yourself to me. That's a great prayer to pray. It's a risky prayer to pray because I believe that Jesus is here and risen and he'll answer that prayer. But I would love you to pray that prayer if you're not sure, to just ask Jesus to reveal himself to you if he is real. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
Maybe you just want to write a prayer which speaks to Jesus about what's going on in your life at the moment. Maybe it's about a struggle that you're having that you really want Jesus to be present in, strengthening you and helping you with. Uh, maybe something great has happened this week or today and you want to share that with Jesus who loves to know our joys and celebrate the good things that are happening in our lives with us. Write about that. The resurrection of Jesus is about relationship. It's about Jesus being with us through all of life, the ordinary stuff, the hard stuff, the good stuff, and speaking with him and being with him in the midst of all of it. Jesus is alive, we believe, and Jesus' resurrection is not about wowing us, but actually being in relationship with us, and the sort of relationship that goes on forever and ever, starting today, but for the everyday and going on forever. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.